hi, this is Glenn Rawson. One of the most powerful ways to share history and heritage is by the telling of stories. We began sharing inspiring stories nearly 30 years ago. Each of those stories is true and was intended to inspire and strengthen faith. Over the years, those stories have reached millions around the world. This podcast is for you to listen, learn, and enjoy. This story that I would like to share with you is about the skill of learning to overcome the negative things we deal with, learning to overcome discouragement, despair, etc. Now, the story is based on 2 Nephi chapter 4. If you read that chapter, it had to have been a very difficult time for Nephi. His father had poured out his soul in his final admonition to his children, Laman and Lemuel, and his grandchildren, Laman and Lemuel and Nephi and Sam. And then Lehi had waxed old, it says, and died. Now, evidently, Lehi was the check because no sooner was he gone than Laman and Lemuel, the depressing duo, became angry and threatening against Nephi. Nephi's soul was already rent with grief at the loss of his beloved father and was now further harrowed up by the anger of his tormentous brothers. That anger brought guilt to Nephi and grief. And all of that weighed Nephi down to the point where his flesh was wasting away and his will to try was waning. It seems that this may have been, based on the record, one of the darkest times in Nephi's life. In the midst of this, thank heavens he did, Nephi opens up his soul. Oh, wretched man that I am, he cried. Yea, my heart sorroweth because of my flesh. My soul grieveth because of mine iniquities. I am encompassed about by the temptations and sins which do so easily beset me. Listen to what the man is saying. He says, I am surrounded by demons because of the temptations and sins which do so easily beset me. Nephi struggled with temptation just like all the rest of us. This great and good man, this prophet of God, considered himself a wretched man and a sinner. Now, if a powerful prophet of God can feel that way, then maybe there's hope for me, maybe for you. For three sentences, Nephi continues to lament what his sinful nature has done to him and the misery it has caused him. Notably, once most of us get on this train of stinky thinking, we ride it all the way to misery. We just keep going down and down and down from one negative, discouraging, depressing thought all the way to the bottom. But that is not what Nephi did. 
what he does next after three lines of misery and lamenting is both instructive and inspiring in overcoming discouragement and despair. Rather than continue to berate himself, Nephi stops himself, reverses the course of his thoughts, and says, And when I desire to rejoice, he said, My heart groaneth because of my sins. Nevertheless, I know in whom I have trusted. My God hath been my support. And from that point on, Nephi willfully changes focus from his weakness to the Lord's gifts and grace and begins to list all those moments when the Lord mercifully lifted, loved, and led Nephi to see, hear, and know things greater than man can know. Oh, then, Nephi continued, if I have seen so great things, if the Lord in his condescension unto the children of men hath visited men in so much mercy, why should my heart weep and my soul linger in the valley of sorrow and my flesh waste away? Or in other words, if the Lord is so good, why should it consume me how bad I am? And then Nephi says, and I love this, Awake, my soul, no longer droop in sin. Rejoice, O my heart, and give place no more for the enemy of my soul. You see what he understands? Discouragement, despair, depression, this downward spiral of thinking gives place for the enemy of our souls. And then Nephi's lament turns into a psalm of perfect praise, prayer, and joy. He who was sinking into the deadly droop of despair wakens himself unto the light and goodness of God and praises God and counts his blessings. And so can we all, if we're smart enough to recognize that, yes, all men are sinners, and especially me. We can spend all our time on that truth, or we can spend our time on this truth. God is merciful. God is just. God is kind. God is compassionate. He and his angels and his Son will help me will forgive if I'll just try, try a little harder to be good. My dear friends, we can focus on stinky thinking. We can walk around in the droop of despair, head down, eyes on the ground, shoulders slumped, or we can straighten up, square our shoulders, stiffen our back, and change our mind and focus on the fact that God is with us, and we can do this. Our happiness, my dear friends, depends entirely on which one of those truths is the focus of our faith. This is the first of the two stories tonight I'll share about the prophet Joseph Smith. I first encountered this story, and I thought, there is no way. But then I went digging for original sources, and I found Sarah's journal. And 
in looking at Sarah's journal, I would be in error if I said Sarah was lying. This is the story, and you judge for yourself. Charles Stoddard was the son of Israel and Sarah Woodward Stoddard. In 1844, the Stoddard family was living in Nauvoo when Charles, age 17 as I calculate, was asked by Joseph Smith the prophet to hire himself out as a houseboy for William Law. Now, by this time, you know William Law was an avowed enemy of Joseph and to keep Joseph informed of Law's actions. Charles' mother, Sarah, recorded the following in her diary dated February 1844. Quote, Charles doesn't like his work at the Laws. He says the riffraff of Nauvoo drink and carouse all night and lay plans for what unpleasant things they can do to the Mormons in general and the prophet in particular. The boy looks tired up most of the night so he can keep the prophet posted on Mr. Law's plans and then working by day. He's growing so fast right now, too, and should be getting his rest. Nothing else was written in Sarah's diary until April 1844 when she recorded, quote, Charles had another faith-promoting experience. Early this morning, even while the darkness still hemmed out the light of day, Mr. Law, after he had been drinking and planning with his associates through the night, got Charles out of bed to clean and oil his gun, for he said he was going to shoot the prophet. Only William Law called him Old Joe Smith. Poor Charles was frightened beyond description, but Mr. Law stood over him and prodded him with his foot when Charles hesitated through fright and anxiety. Finally, when Mr. Law was satisfied with the way the gun was working, he put one bullet in. He boasted that he could kill the prophet with one shot and sent Charles to bring the prophet. He ran as fast as he could and delivered the message, but begged the prophet not to go to Mr. Law's as Mr. Law was drunk and Charles was afraid he would carry through on his threat to shoot the prophet in cold blood. In spite of Charles' protestations, the prophet rose from bed and dressed. It was breaking dawn by this time. As they walked the few blocks from the mansion house to the law residence, the prophet reassured Charles that no harm would come to him that day. Charles was frightened, and he said it kept racing through his mind. I am the one that cleaned the gun that is going to be used to kill the prophet, until he was sick with fear. The prophet, in a final attempt to calm my dear son, uttered the fateful words. Mr. Law may someday kill me, Charles, but it won't be today. As they approached their destination, Mr. Law came staggering out of the house, and his only greeting was angry boasts of what he intended to do. The prophet said kindly and unafraid, You sent for me, Mr. Law? 
to which Mr. Law replied with oaths that he had and that he was now going to do Nauvoo, Illinois, and indeed the whole world a great favor by disposing of the prophet with one shot. Calmly, the prophet unbuttoned his shirt and bared his chest and then said, I'm ready now, Mr. Law. Charles said at this point he nearly fainted. Fear strangled him until he was speechless and paralyzed. Unable to move a muscle, and then Mr. Law paced a few steps, turned, aimed, and pressed the trigger. There was complete silence. Then the air rang with profanity, and Mr. Law turned on Charles, accusing him of fixing the gun so that it would not go off and threatening to kill even Charles, my innocent, frightened, but faithful son. The prophet, to divert Mr. Law's blame of Charles, suggested that a can be placed on the fence post for Mr. Law to take a practice shot. Relieved, Charles ran for a can, laid it on its side on the post. Mr. Law paced back, took aim, and fired. His one shot streaked through the exact center of the bottom of that can. Mr. Law is well known for his marksmanship even when drunk. Even Mr. Law was quiet as if stunned. The prophet buttoned up his shirt, gave Charles a meaningful look, and then said, If you are finished with me now, Mr. Law, I have other things needing to be done. Good morning. That was Sarah Stoddard's last entry in her diary. Within three years, she and her husband had passed away, leaving their five children orphans to make their way across the plains with the saints. In 1847, during the Exodus, Sarah's daughter, Rebecca, picked up the diary and made one final entry. Among other things, she wrote this in conclusion, quote, And now, after two years, we have enough accumulated to get equipped with the bare necessities and we are ready at last to start west. We've seen so many thousands depart for that long-sought land of freedom, and now we are ready, we five stoddard children, to keep the promise to our parents. So now, I close my mother's diary here at Montrose, Iowa, where she was laid to rest beside my father and baby Michael, adding my testimony to hers. I know this is God's church, and that Joseph Smith was a prophet of the Lord, as is Brigham Young, with whom we now set ourselves out to join in the West. End of quote. You judge for yourself. I found it on, on Family Search under the memories of Charles Stoddard and Sarah Stoddard. Okay, now this next story, I've got to tell you the story behind the story. One of our faithful listeners is Diana Paquette from Canada. Diana, I hope I said the name right. I never can remember pronunciations. Well, she watches these firesides all the time. And way back when, she sent me this story. I printed it off. In fact, I think I printed it off two or three times and meant to include it in a fireside, and it seemed like 
every time I went to put this story in a fireside, something would happen. I'd run out of time. I'd lose the paper. And today, yesterday, while I was putting the final touches on the stories, guess what I found? The paper, the lost paper of Diana's story. And I thought to myself, tonight's the night. So here is Diana Paquette's story, and I share it with you because I want you to understand. And I hope this doesn't take any, send any offense to you, Diana, but most of us are just good old, ordinary, plain, common, garden variety, vanilla Latter-day Saints. We're not prophets and apostles. We're not big things. We're just grunts in the trenches doing the work and trying to be good. And you know, I'm convinced you don't have to be great to have the Lord's love and to see miracles. And this story, forgive me, Diana, is to illustrate that point. Sometimes the most wonderful miracles are small and simple things. Diana said, I'm a convert to the church. She said, I joined when I was 26. She said, when I was little, I heard the parables and stories in Sunday school. She then continues, after my husband and I divorced, my daughter and I would invite the missionaries for supper once a week. I loved the spirit they would bring into our home. I had always told them, she said, if there was a time that any of the elders didn't have a dinner appointment to bring them over, I would feed them. Well, on one such occasion, as I opened the door, she said, I saw my elders and six more with them. Now, I make a lot of food, but I wasn't sure about feeding ten of us. They came in, and as we talked, I felt impressed to say a prayer. I excused myself, she said, and went to my room where I knelt in prayer and explained the situation to my Heavenly Father. I expressed my desire for his servants to be full when they left my home and said, If thou canst feed five thousand with five loaves and two fishes, well, then my crock pot of homemade chicken noodle soup and grilled cheese sandwiches could feed ten of us. <laughs> I asked for his blessing to be on that food and for it not to run out. I got up and came back to the front room. As we ate, she said, a powerful spirit attended my home, and I felt someone else was there. As we continued to eat, I noticed that the soup and sandwiches never diminished, and we ate till we were all full. I even had plenty for those young servants of God to take home. I was so grateful to my father that my prayer was heard. I know he hears us and answers our much sought-after desires. End of quote. I love that story. Diana, thank you for sharing. Thank you for listening. Many of the stories you heard today have been published and are archived at glenrossonstories.com. If you would like more information, you can communicate with us there. We will be back again with another podcast next week.